You're listening to DraftKings Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. What's Russell going to do? I don't know, man. What's he going to do? I don't know. I'm going to tell you right now. I got some Visine from my third eye on this one. <laughs> nice and clear, nice milky white eyeball, beautiful iris. <laughs> Strong pupil size, if I do say so myself. There's one of two possibilities for the Lakers to go out in this offseason and acquire not one but two asshole point guards. Yeah. Either they've got a deal for Russ impending where he's going to be out the door, or this is them subtly, not so subtly, shoving him towards the door to take a buyout. Either way, with every passing day, I am less and less convinced that Russell Westbrook will be a part of this Lakers team when opening night comes. They basically said, all right, Patrick Beverly, come on down. Point card, play defense, be the leader, the emotional leader of this team. Wait, don't you already have Russell Westbrook starting point guard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Don't worry about that. He's Russell Westbrook. We love that guy. And then they have the dap at the little press conference and all this. And on top of that, they bring in Dennis Schroeder. So this team that already had Russell Westbrook, LeBron James, two point guards, they signed Patrick Beverly, a third point guard. This was brought to my attention. I forgot Kendrick Nunn still exists, <laughs> by the way. Where is Russell Westbrook on this depth chart? Darvin Ham apparently has great conversations with Russell Westbrook and everyone's happy. Great. La, la, la. And then they bring in Dennis Schroeder. And if we know one thing about Russell Westbrook is he wants that ball. He is very proud of his status in the league and the MVP. And his whole idea is 
watch me do my thing. Get that rebound, go down the floor, and I'm going to just dunk on everybody. What if he doesn't play or have the ball in his hands? You're saying the thing we know about Russell Westbrook, the thing I know about Dennis Schroeder, this is a man who without $84 million was beneath him and left as a result out of principle. And now he's back for minimum, which is just a tremendous thing. But there's two more things about Dennis Schroeder. Beyond that, he's just a very egotistical asshole who thinks he's a lot better than what he is, right? One, this ain't his first time playing with Russell Westbrook. He was the backup in Oklahoma City. And dare I say, none too fond of his role there. Second of all, he's got a relationship with Darvin Ham. Because Darvin Ham was on the staff in Atlanta when Dennis Schroeder played for the Hawks. Mm. So you've got an opportunity now. Not only is it like, yeah, I know you and you know, we didn't really get along, but also, oh, hey, coach. Yeah. How's the family? <laughs> like, you got all that familiarity there. Wait a second. These things are starting to line in a certain way. They didn't bring Scott Brooks. Yeah, they didn't bring Scott Brooks in. <laughs> if I'm Russell Westbrook, I'm looking around and saying, wait a second. What's going on here? What are y'all doing? What's what's happening here for real? And it kind of sucks because I know he's a lightning rod for criticism and all, but like, again, as you point out, by all accounts, he's done the professional thing. He's done everything the right way this offseason. And this is the reward he gets, is to get shit on incrementally by paper cut. You were connecting the dots with that Schroeder, Darvin Ham matchup, man. Those dots are connected. There is a constellation here, folks. You don't get inducted into the secret society. You're just sitting around here looking cute. You better put that third eye to work. My assignment. Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money. And you don't know where the f*** it's going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's but- all it took. Oh, we got books. We got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball Illuminati. <laughs> This is Basketball Illuminati. I am Tom Haberstro, as always, joined by my five-star Illumin Army Generals, Amin El Hassan and producer Anthony Mays. If you haven't yet, make sure you follow our Twitter account. It's at B-Ball Illuminati and our Instagram at Basketball Illuminati. We've got art for every episode that we post there. I don't know what we're going to do with it, Mays, but I feel like we should do something with that, right? It's a beautiful, growing collection 
that eventually will have to turn into some sort of print or maybe some t-shirts, some merch. There's a lot of potential there. Guys, 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 you're thinking so three-dimensionally here. Matching tattoos? Uh, that's a little too far. Oh. NFTs. Oh. NFTs. Come on, man. That's still a thing. Is that not no longer a thing? Remember when Top Shot, did people still do Top Shot? It went from, all I hear is people won't shut the hell up about it. And now it's like I haven't heard the word Top Shot in at least a year. So let's revive that market with the Basketball Illuminati NFT collection. Yeah. Can we get a clip of you on CNN with your Basketball Illuminati hoodie as an NFT? What I liked about that clip was that it just said basketball. That was the only part you could see. <laughs> no, it had the eye. The triangle in the eye wasn't there. I know the eye was poking out, but it kind of looked like you were just... Mike Ryan with the NFL hat on. <laughs> I'm Amido Hassan and I like basketball. Basketball, yeah. I'm a basketball guy. <laughs> I'm a family guy. What do we got on the show today, Tom? We have a truth teller guest that we are most excited about, Dominique Foxworth from ESPN. He is joining us as a former COO. That's the chief operating officer of the NBPA, the players union on the NBA side, coming over from the NFL, former NFL player, incredibly talented individual on the field and off the field, Harvard business grad, really smart interview. I want to give him kudos. I didn't get to do it during the interview. He managed to say business school a bunch of times without ever mentioning Harvard, I believe. To avoid the look at me, Louis sound. So my dad went to Harvard. This is what happens here, right? Clip it, Mace. (laughs) Look at me, poppy talk. What's happening (laughs) right now? (laughs) Look at me, Louis. When people are like, oh, your dad, where'd he go to school or something like that? And comes up in conversation. I'm like, oh, he went to college in Boston. And someone called me out and was like, he went to Harvard, but you don't want to say it. Because if you said Harvard, you look like a look at me, Louie. You went to Harvard. But if you say you went to school in Boston, it looks a little bit more humble. Yes, Dominique Foxworth is going to join us on the show, on the program, and tell us what it's like to be going at the NBA owners and negotiations and what's it like to be part of a players' union in these CBA talks when things like this happen. Don't forget to catch his new podcast. It's called The Dominique Foxworth Show. Oh, they're really bent over backwards on that name. Go subscribe to that. But first... are listening to The Agenda with Tom Haberstrow and Amin El-Hassan. Yeah, we talked about it last week. This Robert Sarver story is not going away anytime soon. And as soon as we wrapped last week's episode, of course, LeBron James comes out with a very strong statement on Twitter saying essentially, not good enough, commissioner, not good enough, NBA. It's not right. Chris Paul echoed it, I think, like a few minutes after that. And then PayPal, the CEO of PayPal says that they are going to pull money for their sponsorship if Robert Sarver is not out after this suspension. They have one more year left on the deal with the Suns. So we have lots to get into here. I mean, do I call you CNN correspondent, Amin Hassan, or still Lumen Army General is how you want to be presented? Contributor is what I would call myself. My work is featured on CNN, if I'll put that in my Twitter bio. Mm. There's a lot of intrigue in this. So John Najafi is one of the minority partners in the Phoenix Suns. He bought in, I want to say, probably about... 12, 13 years ago. I remember when he came on. You were working for the Suns when John Najafi, the second largest stakeholder of the Phoenix Suns. He came in at a time when maybe we're strapped for cash and with a cash infusion, earned his way into 
some equity there, a, a considerable amount of equity. And I believe he's continued to grow in that regard over the years. Najafi is very anti-Robert in the sense that Robert is an extrovert. He's a big, loud, look at me, Louis type guy. Najafi's a very reserved man. So I imagine, and I've heard rumors and speculation over the years of some minority owners, not naming any who, but some had thought about and contemplated the idea of a coup, basically to get Robert up out of there. But it never really had any legs or gained any fruition. So when this happened, I said, oh, well, maybe maybe this is their opportunity. They saw the opportunity and now they're striking. But then in the release, Najafi says, I don't want to be the person who buys the sun. Mm. Why would he call for it to happen but not want it for himself? This can't purely be altruism, right? If it's a case of he doesn't want to be affiliated with this guy, well, surely he could just sell his stake. Then I remembered, if you force Robert out, triggering a sale, the sale price is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of upwards over a billion and a half, maybe up to $1.8 billion, maybe even $2 billion Yep. when it's all said and done. Whatever John Rajafi's stake is, it's going to be a much larger payout of $2 billion versus him selling his stake a la carte. And that got me thinking, okay, so you've put this out there, but how does that statement alone act as an impulse to make this happen? Well, it doesn't, unless you have corroboration, coordination from other parties. Mm. Now I look at it and I say, well, it started with a LeBron tweet, then a Chris Paul tweet, then a Players Association statement, then Najafi, and then PayPal. And if you put it all together, you can see the different parties coming together and saying, okay, this is how it gets done, without having to rely on Adam Silver or the NBA owners to be a part of that process. It'll be interesting if we see one more big sponsor be the one to say, we're out too. Verizon, for example, is a huge Sun sponsor. They've been around for a while. They got their name on the practice facility. And they're an account that I could see being one where it's like, look, we don't want our name affiliated with this mess. This is bad for business. So if you could see a Verizon or another large sponsor of that caliber of magnitude Making that be known, I think you could see some some traction. Right, because when you talk about how is this playing out for the other owners in the NBA, if sponsors start pulling their money and fans are siding with Chris Paul and LeBron and seeing that they are not for this and we're going to side with the players here, we're not going to support the Phoenix Suns. We're not going to take our hard-earned money and, and sink it in the pockets of Robert Sarver. We're not going to go to Suns games either. Then the other owners say, oh, yeah, yeah, we need to get Sarver up and out of here. Once the money starts hemorrhaging and the sponsorships come out, we got to do something about this. And so it's almost like a soft force out is the idea that Adam Silver is going to levy this one year ban, send a $10 million fine his way, and then let the rest take care of itself. Is that enough? LeBron James, Chris Paul, John Najafi, PayPal, the Players Union to start a movement to get him out of there. I don't know. You need one more big sponsor 
maybe one more big sponsor and a couple of smaller ones, but definitely the big ones because those are the ones where you're paying a shit ton of money every year for all sorts of activations and associations to that. And if I'm not mistaken, I think this is a, a case where, I mean, there might be moral turpitude clauses in there where these organizations, it's not just a case of I've got to fulfill my contract. It's a case of where like, yo, I, I'm going to exit now because of this clause here because this constitutes a, a triggering event. So to give some more background about John Najafi, he is a minority owner of the Phoenix Suns, someone who came over to America from Iran at 12 years old, speaking no English, and says he fell in love with the Suns after watching the finals when he came over and was basically learning English. And a lot of that education and learning the language was watching basketball games. And here he is, leading voice of the adversary of Robert Sarver. And in that statement, I mean, you referenced, he says, in accordance with my commitment to helping eradicate any form of racism, sexism, and bias as vice chairman of the Phoenix Suns, I am calling for the resignation of Robert Sarver. And then emphasis mine here. While I have no interest in becoming the managing partner, I will work tirelessly to ensure the next team steward treats all stakeholders with dignity, professionalism, and respect. And I want people to understand this about John Najafi. Two days after that ESPN report by Baxter Holmes dropped, two days after it, mm-hmm. Robert Sarver was not at the game anymore. I know because I was at the game. <laughs> the November 6th game against the Hawks in Phoenix. I mean, who is courtside of that game? John goes to those games. And, and so does Sam Garvin, the other governor who is going to most probably be named the interim governor. So they go. It's just that most people don't know who they are. They just look like some rich guys sitting front row. Yeah, but you know who sat next to John Najafi as a guest of John Najafi in that game? Who was that? Colin Kaepernick. Really? Colin Kaepernick. I don't remember this at all. I was too busy looking at me looing myself all over the <laughs> arena like, what's up guys? Anything new happen? <laughs> I watched the game. So I read reports about this and I was like, wow, what a move. John Najafi walks in in like the end of the first quarter and sits down courtside with Colin Kaepernick, the face of Black Lives Matter, the face of this movement happening in America. And what people don't know about that relationship, that John Najafi is not just friends with Colin Kaepernick, he is a business partner with Colin Kaepernick. A couple years ago, starting Mission Advancement Corp, which is basically a giant investment vehicle that he raised with Colin Kaepernick $350 million. John Najafi and Colin Kaepernick are business partners. And they just so happen to make sure they plop down their courtside seat right after this report came out and Robert Sarver couldn't be seen. So John Najafi has very much aligned himself and been not just a vocal part of the social justice movement, Black Lives Matter, and raising these voices of non-white people, people who don't look like Robert Sarver. And here you have him also coming out and saying, I don't want to be the managing partner, but I want him out of here. So the question is, who does John Najafi want to run the organization? Or does he care about that end of the thing? Now, our friend Ethan Strauss, who I'm very excited about every time he comes out of this program, wrote in House of Strauss this week that there are rumors and connections between... Bob Iger. Before we get into Iger, you bring to my attention the John Najafi-Colin Kaepernick connection. Remind me of another NFL connection to this story. 
that Larry Fitzgerald, the Hall of Fame bound wide receiver, is a co-owner because he became friends with Robert Sarver, who would turn to him for advice. And so I was like, wait a second, let me do a quick search here. Larry Fitzgerald, Robert Sarver. See what stories come up. And I got a story from last year saying Arizona Cardinals Larry Fitzgerald is among a group of partners with Minority Stakes and the Suns who've come to Sarver's defense. A statement from Fitzgerald and other Suns co-owners said they all dispute an ESPN report's characterization of Sarver and the organization, which includes the Phoenix Mercury, as sexist and racist. The last sentence of this article, this is from KJZZ, which is the NPR affiliate in Phoenix. The last line is, not on the list of Suns co-owners backing Sarver are Dial Capital Partners or Jam Najafi. They issued separate statements on Thursday calling Sarver's alleged behavior extremely concerning and unacceptable. And Tom, I bring all this up because something very interesting that I found has slipped through the cracks of most people talking about this story, but not me. And I talked about it on CNN, but in case you didn't catch me on CNN or on my Instagram, I'm going to give you a summary here. Yeah. This is what Robert Sarver said before the article came out. Mm-hmm. Right? Remember, the Suns went on an offensive before the article was even released because we didn't even know if they were going to be able to release it. We talked about this last year. There's a lot of T's to cross and I's to dot in order to come out with an article like this. But the Suns went on the offensive. This is what Robert Sarver said. I am wholly shocked by some of the allegations reported by ESPN about me personally or about the Phoenix Suns and Mercury organizations. While I can't begin to know how to respond to some of the vague suggestions made by mostly anonymous voices, I can certainly tell you that some of the claims I find completely repugnant to my nature and to the character of the Suns' Mercury workplace, and I can tell you they never, ever happened. First and foremost, I reject any insinuation of personal or organizational racism or gender discrimination. I despise language that disrespects any individuals, regardless of race, gender, preference, or choice. Such language has no place in business or at home in what I consider sons and Mercury families. I categorically deny any and all suggestions that I use disparaging language related to race or gender. This is the statement he put out after the article came out, what I'm about to read to you now. Yep. I continue to be shocked by the false reporting from Baxter Holmes, who wrote the report. While there is so much that is inaccurate and misleading in this story that I hardly know where to begin, let me be clear. The N-word is not part of my vocabulary. I have never called anyone or any group of people the N-word or referred to anyone or any group of people by that word, either verbally or in writing. Yikes. I don't use that word. It is abhorrent and ugly and denigrating and against everything I believe in. The way I lead my personal professional life makes that clear. Instead of reporting the truth, Holmes' story is based on misrepresentations from former Suns coach Earl Watson and other, quote, unnamed sources, unquote. Mr. Watson created an unprofessional, toxic atmosphere in our organization. He is clearly not a credible source. Despite hearing from witness after witness that disputed Mr. Watson's stories, Mr. Holmes completely disregarded the truth here. This is quite a statement. Now we are in the position of trying to disprove things that did not happen. At this point, I would entirely welcome an impartial NBA investigation, which may prove our only outlet for clearing my name and the reputation of an organization of which I'm so very, very proud. Boys, this dude went full Lance Armstrong. 
not only disputing something that turned out to be almost entirely factual, but attacking the credibility of the person writing the story and attacking the credibility of the one person who was brave enough to be a named source in it. This is Ryan Braun. This is Lance Armstrong all over again. By the way, not to be outdone, this statement from Jason Rowley, who's the president and CEO of the Suns, with respect to recent reports about a forthcoming ESPN article regarding Robert Sarver and our organization, I will simply say that we are aware of the false narratives it contains and plan to respond accordingly. This story is completely outrageous and false. It doesn't represent at all the Robert Sarver I've worked alongside of for 15 years. He's not a racist and he's not a sexist. I will also say that the reporter in this instance has shown a reckless disregard for the truth. Everyone's doing laps around what's going to happen to Robert. I want to know what's going to happen to Jason Rowley because he also participated in not only denying categorically things that he knew to be true. There's no way you work alongside a guy for 15 years and not know that. But also attacking the credibility of Baxter Holmes and ESPN in this. It is unconscionable that these people walk away without any sort of repercussions or anything like that. They're not being held accountable for their actions in yeah. attacking Baxter Holmes' journalism ethics, attacking ESPN, who is a business partner of the NBA. And all the Wachtell Lipton investigation showed me is that Baxter Holmes did a hell of a job. Unbelievable job. The report was basically a copy and paste of Baxter's story. Yeah. The only part that was clarified was in Baxter's story, there is a black employee who said they would call him Carlton in the office and make him do the dance. And it turns out like, yeah, they did, but he was calling other, it was kind of like a joking kind of relationship because he called the other guy something like Mr. Drummond or something like that. And then sometimes he would go by the guy's office and do the dance. So it's like, okay, so yeah, it happened, but like there's some more context to that. But other than that, Everything else was just like, I felt like I was reading Baxter's report all over again. Exactly. And so shout out to Baxter for reporting it out. And it begs the question here, if Baxter didn't write that story, would we ever hear about any of this? Would this ever be a story? Not as a story, right? Like you hear things here and there, but I don't think it all comes together in one place where everybody reads it and everybody reacts. No, I don't. And again, for those keeping track at home, this is journalism. Yeah. This is breaking news. This is what it looks like. It's not, oh, James Jones signs a new deal. No, no, no. It's not that. It's this. This is journalism. You hinted at the fact that the CEO who stood up and just launched all these grenades at journalism, at Baxter and their integrity and the league. This is a really interesting dynamic here that I don't think people are paying attention enough about is that, yes, Robert Sarver is gone for a year. But who's stepping in as the interim governor for him? And more importantly, this toxic environment, it might start with Robert, but it was propagated by people beneath him in the same way that a mob boss might be the guy in charge of everything. But those lieutenants and capos are doing shit too to create and continue this. And so to punish, to take out John Gotti, and think, oh, and that's the end of that, without going after any of the underbosses or anything like that, is a fruitless exercise. Think about it, I mean, Sam Garvin is a vice chair 
There's three vice chairs for the Phoenix Suns. Sam Garvin, John Najafi, and Annie Colbert. Did they choose John Najafi to be the interim governor? No. Sam Garvin, who went in with Sarver on this deal in 2014. Sam Garvin made his fortune, I believe, in the rebate industry. Yeah, coupons. Coupons and promotions and rebate industry. He was a marketing mogul who made, I guess, a billion dollars in revenues based on the idea of like rebates and coupons and promos. So you guys know like the rebate is not paid for by the company. It's paid for by a third party. And what most people believe is that like not everyone files for their rebate. So if the manufacturer is paying the rebate company and the rebate company then pays out, it's almost like insurance, right? Yeah. Yeah. If nobody claims it, then I just get to keep the premiums. And that's how Sam Garvin made his fortune. Interesting question for you, Tom. Who picks the interim governor? Well, it looks like from Zach Lowe and Baxter Holmes is reporting that the NBA has authorized Sam Garvin to be the interim governor. Now, who picks Sam Garvin? Is that part of the agreement with the NBA? Is Robert Sarver gets to say like, all right, I'm out, but I get to appoint my successor. Guys, these are the questions you got to ask. Or they don't get answered. Or they don't get answered. Exactly. We have to ask these questions. How did Sam Garvin, who is very much a proxy of Robert Sarver, a close friend of Robert Sarver, business partner of Robert Sarver, went in on the 2004 deal to buy the team from Jerry Colangelo. He was part of that group. And not only was he part of it, there's a story from Paul Coro, our guy, Paul Coro, journalist who covered the Suns for a very long time, saying that he didn't even know Sarver when he went in on the business deal with Sarver, he was actually for the opposition. And then Sarver convinced him to come with his ownership group. He wins the bid. And Garvin to this day is a vice chair, a minority owner, and now is running the organization as the interim governor. The other people in this, you mentioned it, Larry Fitzgerald is one of the names that the Phoenix Suns put out, the Suns Legacy Partners Group, the LLC, the ownership group. There were 12 people or 12 entities in that statement Mm -hmm. denouncing Baxter Holmes and ESPN's reporting. And in it is a bunch of his business partners, Sarver. Yep. Steve Hilton, right? That's one of the names. In 2019, when Sarver retired from his board at Meritage Homes, the CEO, Steve Hilton said, quote, I am sincerely grateful for his contributions and counsel to the company and his friendship over 23 years. That's one of his buddies on that staff. Sarver said, I got in business with a buddy of mine from college nine years ago. This is from his commencement speech at University of Arizona in 2005. His name is Steve Hilton. He started a small home building business called Meritage Corp, and they were building homes in Phoenix. Today, nine years later, the company is one of the 20 largest home building companies in the country. These are the people that Sarver brought into the ownership group. And these are the people who are going to continue running the Suns. And you're telling me, Amin, that they're not going to back Sarver all the way through? Here's what I think. They'll back him up until someone says, here's a shit ton of money. Ah, yes. Ain't nobody good enough friends like that, man. If there's two warring teams here, there's House Sarver, and then there's House whatever, Iger, Bob Iger, whoever you want to say, John Najafi, the thing that we'll talk is money. So all of these cronies of Robert Sarver will back Robert Sarver And they have their signatures on this statement, but it will become interesting when, let's say, John Najafi calls up a buddy of his with billions of dollars and says, hey, we got $2 billion right here. You guys want to cash out? 
And we'll see how much that loyalty goes. One of the other owners was the late Dick Heckman. If you remember, Dick Heckman was the guy whose funeral where Robert did the roast. True Hoop broke the story. Henry Abbott broke the story. The video, the roast, where he's laughing about basically orgies on boats. The guy who just passed away at a memorial service, he's making all sorts of very crass jokes. Which, in the interest of clarity and and transparency, that was Dick Heckman's, I believe, his wish that his funeral would be a roast. I don't know if he meant, like, take it all the way to the point where you're making jokes of who I'm banging right in front of my, you know, friends and family on this day, but... It is what it is. That's the Heckman on this statement. This Phoenix Sun statement denouncing the investigation is signed by the Heckman family. So there's Larry Fitzgerald, there's Steve Hilton, there's Andy Kohlberg, who's a vice chair of the company. There's Mark Schlossberg, also a business partner of Robert Sarver. So I guess it comes to the question of, is Bob Iger rumored to be a potential suitor and buyer of the Phoenix Suns? Possibly. I mean, he has done business deals with John Najafi before. John Najafi bought the X Games from Disney, his company with Jeff Morad, who is a former sports agent. Yeah. Look, Chris Paul, who is now aligned with John Najafi and trying to hold Robert Sarver accountable, he's close friends with Bob Iger. We don't know officially whether Bob Iger is interested in buying the Phoenix Suns. But you can see how this alignment could form, right? That Bob Iger's out here and he's like, this is the path. Some suitor is going to come in here and say, how do we get Robert Sarver out of here? Well, this scenario is ripe for a takeover. This is what you need. You need, again, equal parts sponsors dropping out. And you need someone coming in with so much money. No one will stand by out of loyalty. They're going to be like, I get how much? All right, man. I'm done talking about this. I want to talk to someone who's been in the boardroom with these owner types and with commissioners and been part of the hard negotiations in two different sports. That's right. He's a two-sport executive, if not two-sport athlete. His name is Dominic Foxworth of ESPN and of the Dominic Foxworth Show, and he joins us next on Basketball Illuminati. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. You all think I'm licked. Well, I'm not licked. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. 
There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity in the gray lie not in the truth. But what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. It keeps them up nights. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man, you can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna do something really outrageous. I'm gonna tell the truth. Mr. Dominique Foxworth from ESPN joining us, big friend of the program at Lebetard. What's up? He is the go-to source if you want to know about the business of sports and what it's like to be a player going in collective bargaining agreements. Not only did he play in the NFL, I think he was the youngest player representative and union executive member while with the NFL. And then also, I think in 2014, Dominique, you made the transition for a brief time over with the NBA. So it's not just the NFL. You were also named the COO of the Players Association on the NBA side. So welcome to the program. Thank you. Who's the guest that you aren't excited to have? You started by saying you're really excited about having me as a guest, which I assume you say to everyone. So I do not actually appreciate that as a compliment because it's just a hollow platitude. Ethan Strauss would probably it. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Make sure we let Ethan know. <laughs> and now I feel better. I actually feel it was genuine. I just needed one person beneath me. That's all I needed. I have a fragile ego. Did you want most excited? Yeah. Like of all the excitedness we've had having guests, Dominique is the most. Okay. We're good. Is he? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as long as it's honest, I prefer a mean with his brutal honesty. Like if I'm top five, top 10 or bottom five, just let me know so I can up my game. We'll see, right? <laughs> we'll reevaluate at the end of this. <laughs> Thank you, Amin. So we wanted to have you on because I think you provide insights. You've been in those meetings. You've been in that circle, that room negotiating and being on the other side of the owners in the NFL. And now we're seeing this Robert Sarver saga play out. And he's been suspended, banned for a year, $10 million fine from the league. And you having been in those circles, in those rooms, What is your reaction to what Adam Silver announced and the league announced after their investigation? I'm not surprised. As is the case most of the time is people on an individual basis are kind and progressive and all those things. And I'm talking about Adam Silver at this point. And the many times that I've been around Adam Silver, talked to Adam Silver, I like him very much. And he is everything that people say he is. But I've always kind of warned people against the idea of holding him up as some progressive icon. And that was kind of happening a bunch back when players were not kneeling and putting logos on courts and jerseys and stuff. And honestly, I did not anticipate this necessarily. I was more concerned. And this was even back when I was working at the PA. I know who he works for Mm. and I know where his incentives are. And I was hesitant because it felt like we were participating in building up this goodwill for him and the public. And I know that when CBA negotiation time comes, as I've been a part of it before, what happens is they come out and tell a reason why they need more money. (laughs) And it is always bullshit. And if we have built up this near deity of trustworthy, honest, great person, which he can be all those things. But when it comes down to the come down, 
he has a job and his responsibility is to get the best situation for his employer, the people who elect him to keep that job every year. And I just was more concerned about when it came down to negotiation time, Adam Silver was built up to be this person that can be trusted and he's going to come out here and parrot the company line. And then what we have to fight on the other side is black guys that most of the country is jealous of. Mm. And it just felt like we were setting ourselves up to get our ass beat in CBA negotiations. So that marries well with this conversation because we see who he works for. And again, I've gotten calls from people at the league office before because I've said things similar to this on TV in the past. And they're always like coming at me about how I know him and he's not like that. And that's why I try to be extra clear if I was the commissioner of the NBA, <laughs> I would be doing the same thing. The same thing. Yeah, it's yeah. not about him. It's about the position. So in the same way that you don't want to raise up politicians like they're gods, you don't want to do the same thing to a league commissioner. Let me ask you, Dominique, what is Adam Silver like in a negotiation room? Which would be the place where the biggest departure from his public persona and what people believe of him as a person, right? The biggest departure from the good Adam Silver, who's a great guy and all that, would be Adam Silver in that negotiation room. Right. I left before we got down to the real last minute negotiations. But up until then, he was the guy that he was portrayed to be. Like, he was really, we had some negotiations about reing up because, you know, a BRI, basketball related income, is objective in some ways and so every year the owners or governors whatever terminology you guys are comfortable with (laughs) (laughs) they find ways to cook the books a little bit so like an example is there's a billboard in the stadium and that's basketball related revenue because the sponsors had to pay to get that billboard in the stadium to be seen on tv and seen by the fans or whatever so we would consider that basketball related revenue they would say something to the effect of No, our sponsors paid to have that in the stadium all the time. So you only get a certain percentage of that because they also have it there when the circus is in town. (laughs) And so we negotiated a deal where we think that it's 50% circus, 50% basketball. So only half of this is basketball-related revenue. So in those negotiations, Adam Silver was – I felt like pretty honest and amenable to the things that we thought were reasonable and it was fine. And that was my experience with Adam Silver. But again, when they got down to the real tight, serious negotiations, I was no longer part of that team. How did you get involved with the NBA Players Union? Was that something you always wanted to do or? No, I I went to business school with the intentions of leaving sports altogether, but they sucked you back in. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) And here you are with us. Really excited to have you. You think you're better than us? Get your black ass back here. I did. Sports for the rest of your life. I thought I was. And I learned. I'm not. <laughs> no, they moved on from Billy Hunter. So they were looking for a new executive director. I was one of the finalists. I was told by their executive committee that they really liked me. But whatever. We don't need to get into the details. But the point was they liked me enough that they recommended that I meet with Michelle. And she was impressed enough to offer me a job and that's how I got involved. And how different is the NBA owners or the ownership groups compared to the NFL? Not very. When people say the NBA is the most progressive league, I think they're right. But 
I don't know what metaphor you want to use, but <laughs> it is the one-eyed man in the city of the blind. So, like, yeah, I think that that is probably true. But you're comparing them to baseball, hockey, and football. So, again, most of these people in one-on-one situations, with the exception of people like Jerry Richardson, most of them in one-on-one situations are like, fine, and you like them. And then you get down to the negotiations and you see that, they don't really value you necessarily in the way that you think you deserve to be valued. I want to go back to, you know, discussing things like what constitutes BRI. Would you classify that as a lot of the conversations between the union and the league, which is trying to define like with a fine tooth comb, things that count, things that don't count. The example I think of all the time is Dan Gilbert uses the popularity of the Cavs to get gambling passed in Ohio to open a casino that is attached via yep. skyways to the arena. All that money does not happen if he doesn't own the Cavs, but none of that counts towards BRI. They're billionaires. <laughs> they don't get that way by not looking for every advantage and rationalizing whatever decisions they made to get there. One of the things that I learned about myself, like I went to business school with still a very competitive mindset, like I'm going to turn this money into hundreds of millions of dollars. Then business school had the opposite effect on me than I think it's supposed to have. I cared less about money when I left business school. Why? Because, so to be honest with you, from the time I was eight to the time I retired from football, I was very focused on goals and I never really stopped to think. Business school was the first time I slowed down and had time to be like, what makes you happy? What do you actually care about? And we all were in there and no one had made as much money as me, but a lot of people came from a lot of money. Mm. So I was a little bit older than people. I was married with two kids. Most people are like 26 to 28 and were trying to make their money. I just didn't fit in because, you know, I was like, this ain't right. This don't feel good. And I was involved in it, like in the competition, I got to have the best this, I got to go do recruiting so I can get the best job, or I got to start a company or invest in, in one of my friend's startups or my classmate's startups and all that stuff. And I was thinking like that, thinking like that and living like that. It was always in the back of my mind, like, this is not making me happy. Like I'm doing football all over again. When, what the fuck was the point of football if I'm going to live my life that way going forward? And then that's ultimately why I ended up leaving the union because I moved my wife and two kids at the time and my wife was pregnant to a small apartment in New York. And I was getting up at seven in the morning to go to work and getting home at eight at night and had money in my bank account, maybe at some point in my life. But at that particular point in my life, this ain't for me. When we look at this story now, Dominique, it's starting to shift from what is the NBA going to do about this? What is Adam Silver going to do about this? What is the investigation going to come up with and what is the penalty that the commissioner is going to hand down. And now you're seeing Chris Paul talk. Yeah. Now you see LeBron James come out. Now you see PayPal threatening to pull their money with the patch on their Jersey says PayPal. Well, to be fair, they're not trying to pull their money. They're threatening to not keep giving money once their agreement is conveniently over in the next year or so. If he's not out. Yeah. It now is shifting the conversation, Dominique, to the idea that the players need to step up here. Yeah. If they want to get Sarver out, then the players need to step up and boycott the league and not show up for training camp. To me, this is unfair on the players. This doesn't feel like this is the players' responsibility to sacrifice their money because of Robert Sarver's behavior and the NBA's determination. So 
if you're advising the players, what should they do here? I would advise them to do what they want to do. I would not say that they shouldn't because civil disobedience is like core to what this country purports to stand for. So if that's what you want to do, then fine. I hate the idea that there is pressure on it. And it frustrates me when the public is like, well, what's LeBron going to do? Or what's Chris Paul going to do? I don't think it's their responsibility. You're not doing that to the white players. What They don't have no obligation to keep this or to push this country and this league in the right direction. And honestly, I don't think that any of the players should have that responsibility. I get that LeBron has more power than somebody at home, but I feel like when it comes to issues like this, especially this one, because it's like a lot of misogyny and racism, this is the country that we live in. This is the culture that we allow to exist. So if you're upset about it on LeBron James' behalf, why not be upset about it on your own behalf and stand up? Make your decision. Don't go to their games. Boycott their games. Like You can do things, too. You can organize against them. You cannot buy from their sponsors. Like These are things that everyone else can do. But if you want to complain about someone, then you should complain about the other owners. People just tend not to know who the owners are. Right. And it's much easier to point at LeBron and say, he got to do more, which to me seems absurd. I think I understand that feeling. And it's rooted in what you just said, is that because people know LeBron and people don't know Herb Simon. Yeah. or Stan Kroenke or some of these other nameless, faceless people. You know, I could ask, I do a poll of a hundred citizens walking the street and ask them, hey, what's the name of the owner that owns the Boston Celtics? And they won't know. They'll be like Larry Bird. <laughs> they know Larry Bird. They know Paul Pierce. They might even know Jason Tatum before they know Steve Paliuka. Yeah. And don't let me ask them to spell it. <laughs> I guess, Dominic, if you were a player on the Suns, how would you personally, I'm not saying what you would make your teammates do, how would you personally react to finding out? You played for the Broncos, you played right. for the Ravens. If one of those teams had that kind of scandal, how would you have reacted? I mean, it's easy for me to say that I would have taken a stand now, but if I'm being completely honest, it depends on what year it was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like early in my career, there's no chance. Right. Late in my career, I was actually making real money, so maybe not then either. I don't know. I just It'd be very difficult for me to... My first instinct is to say I would have stood up and I can point to examples in my life where I risked things in order to stand up. But I think it's also just easy now. And so I would say to those people who can't name the owners of teams, but think LeBron should do more. The least you could do is learn the names of the motherfuckers who are doing this. <laughs> that just to me feels like where we should start before you start pointing fingers at other people. And I get it. If LeBron wants to do it, I'm going to support him. And we're using LeBron's name a lot, but I mean, any player, Chris Paul or any of the popular players, I will certainly support him and defend them. But it just reminds me of the kneeling thing where everyone was coming in every locker room asking all the black players, are you going to kneel? There's a slight difference in that it's not about asking the black players so much as asking the famous, influential, quote unquote, powerful players, right? I ain't seen one tweet about Luka Doncic needing to take a stand. Like it hasn't happened. That's fair. But I think about, for instance, the Suns. If Dario Saric comes out and is like, this is unacceptable, no one knows who the f*** he is. <laughs> so Dario Saric ain't going to move that needle. And dare I say it, many of the black players, DeAndre Ayton, who is a really good player, doesn't move that needle. Devin Booker might not move that needle. I think he could, but he, he might not. Chris Paul, I know, is, 
by virtue of his fame, by virtue of his track record, and by virtue of he was the president of the Players Association for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And also, I think there is a part of this where when you talk about Chris Paul and LeBron James, these are guys who in the past have thrown their hat into that ring. Yeah. I champion these causes. For instance, no one's asking Kawhi Leonard either. Yeah. Why? Because Kawhi doesn't say shit anyway. We know this about him. So there's no expectation that Kawhi Leonard should speak out versus LeBron, who has a reputation of pointing out very loudly when things are not the way it seems. I'm not trying to convince anybody else to agree with me. It's just not a position that I want to take. I just don't feel comfortable with someone doing something misogynist and racist. My instinct is not to turn to the people in the party that's victimized by this and say, why don't you do something to fix this? Mm. It just don't sit well with me. It doesn't. If they want to, again, I, I got their back to the degree that I can. But anybody who's calling on them to do more, then like, it just feels like they need to do more. I think you nailed it is the idea of if you were younger in your career, you might have a different take on this or a different plan of action than if you're at the end of your career. And the two players that have spoken out strongly are LeBron James and Chris Paul, who are on the tail end of their careers and also superstars. So Devin Booker hasn't said anything. Stephen Curry hasn't said anything. Luka Doncic hasn't said anything. And to me, I read that one or two ways. One, they got to discuss more with the union and try to figure out how they're going to play this out, how they want to message going into training camp. Let's come up with a plan and then go forward. The other side of this is like, while they find the investigation and the misogyny and the racism and all that in that report, while they find that indefensible, maybe they just don't feel that strongly to come out on someone they don't know about. I don't know. I guess, I mean, I'm also asking this to you. Mm -hmm. Did it strike you that LeBron James came out and Chris Paul came out with their statements and then it didn't follow with a symphony of players speaking out? It felt coordinated. It felt like a coordinated event where it's like, he's going to say something, he's going to say something, then PayPal is going to say something. Because that's the other thing that we're not privy to, right? For instance, Steph Curry, I didn't see you tweet anything. But I don't know what conversations Steph Curry had at levels much higher than 280 characters at a time. If he's doing the work behind the scenes, then who am I to say you didn't do anything? In the same way that when players don't post that they've been working out all summer, <laughs> there's some people have this weird thing like, oh, the catch 22. Yeah. He hasn't even done anything. Well, just because I didn't have a film crew ready doesn't mean... I didn't do anything. And then when they put something out, it's, man, look at me, Louie, over here with the workout. Yeah, look at me, Louie, yeah. (laughs) What about the owners? And what about, I mean, I I feel like I've excused Adam Silver more than I even want to. But if you aren't going to take the energy to take some action yourself as just regular Joe fan who claims to be offended by this, Mm -hmm. if your only action is to call for LeBron to do more, You're not even going to the top. You're not even going to the decision makers. The uproar should be around the league and the owners doing more. Like, are you comfortable with this guy representing you? Are you comfortable with this representing your league? If you're not willing to boycott, then you should at least aim your ire at them, not at LeBron. Mm. This is where the ugly underbelly is revealed, where, as Dan likes to say a lot, it's yes, but don't take away my joy. Exactly. And in the case of like Suns fans, for a team that's been awful for so long, and now finally they're good, and it's like, whoa, hold on now, boycott. Wait a second now. We just got good. We got a chance to win a title, maybe. Ah, the guy's a piece of shit, but you know, like, I ain't gonna do the steps that's gonna 
send those messages because those steps also inevitably conflict with my ability for my joy. And that's ultimately why things don't tend to change in this country. Right. So your joy, (laughs) particularly if you are calling for somebody else to give up something that means a whole lot to them. I don't know. It frustrates me. It just like the more I read about this, the more I hear about it, I get I'm disappointed with how it gets characterized. It gets characterized as to me, at least. Well, Robert Sarver's kind of a jerk, but he's not a racist like Donald Sterling. That guy was a racist. Racist is subjective. And honestly, I don't care. I think I'm past name calling people like that. What matters to me, particularly in this case, is the bar should be higher for someone who runs an organization. Mm -hmm. The bar should be higher for someone who has billions of dollars. The same way the bar is higher for athletes because they have millions of dollars, like things that athletes get involved in, they get punished for being accused of something, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. I'm saying it happens. And part of the reason why we say that or we allow that is the expectation is higher for them because of the position that they're in. How does that not apply to somebody who runs the whole damn team when in actuality, the expectation is low for them? And Adam Silver just about said it explicitly. And that to me is the craziest part. I think everybody in this room would agree that if any of us had said or done even a small percentage of the things that Robert Sarver has been shown to have said and done, we would be fired. And I assume that anybody working at Olympic Tower, if they had done even a percentage of that, would be fired. And anybody who worked for any of your 30 teams would easily be fired. Why would there be a different standard? And understanding the complications of removing an owner, why should there be a different standard for the owner of an NBA team than there would be for everybody who works in this league? Fair question. I don't want to say you, you alluded to it, Howard, that there are particular rights here of someone who owns an NBA team as, to some, as opposed to somebody who's an employee. I, I, the equivalent of a $10 million fine and a one-year suspension, I don't know how to measure that against a job, but I have certain authority by virtue of this organization, and that's what I exercised. Um, I don't have the right to take away his team, I don't want to rest on that neat legal point because, of course, there could be a process to take away someone's team in this league. It's very involved. And I ultimately made the decision that it didn't rise to that level. But to me, the consequences are severe here on Mr. Sarver. Reputationally, it's hard to even make those comparisons to somebody who commits an inappropriate act in the workplace in somewhat of an anonymous fashion versus what is a a huge public issue now around this person. So there's no neat answer here. I mean, it's other, other than owning property, the rights that come with, with, with owning an NBA team, um, you know, how that's set up within our constitution, um, what it would take to remove that team, you know, from his control is a very involved process, and it's different than holding a job. It just is when, when, when you actually um, own a, a team. It's, a, it's, it's just a very different proposition. But Howard Beck question that was really illuminating was that it is lower, but it's a strange thing because they're both part of a whole. They're equals with other owners, but then they're the head of their own ship. 
Yeah. So we can raise the bar for entry going forward, but can we retroactively raise the bar that's already existed for so many years? <laughs> Hopefully that's what we're doing in this country, this country that's founded on slavery. Like, I like to think that that is the point of this place is that we're trying to retroactively raise the bar continuously. Women got the right to vote. Gay people got the right to be married. That's the whole goddamn point of this country. Like, that's what we pretend to say we are. And so, yeah, I think so. When we learn more or we evolve in some way, yeah, the bar should also move with you. You don't get to stay in the 50s just because you got... $50 $50 billion. I mean, clearly you do. Yeah, I about to say, I don't know. <laughs> I think I think they're pretty comfortable. Right. You shouldn't be able to. <laughs> right. That's why I'm so adamant about not coming down on the players. Let's come down on them. If you want to come down on somebody or just shut up and accept that you are comfortable with how stuff is. How surprised were you that the league spokesman, Mike Bass, went back and put out an extra release to clarify Adam Silver's comment or answer to Howard Beck's question. I was not surprised. <laughs> I mean, it needed clarification. It was a correction. It was not a clarification. He didn't really back off, right? His words were, Commissioner Silver's answer to a question about the rights of business owners did not mean to suggest that NBA players, employees, and owners are not held to the same standard of appropriate conduct. So I don't feel like he was refuting what Adam Silver said. Yeah. He's just saying, like, there's a standard of appropriate conduct, but also they have different rights. Yeah. I mean, I can go down the list of all the things that the NBA's own report said that they did and ask you if an employee did any of them, would they be safe? We all know the answer to that. Yeah. Because ultimately, the way I think about it is it's a room of 30 owners and it's the rest of us. Right. And that includes players and other millionaires and all that stuff. And those 29 of them, I don't know how much they don't like that one guy. And in many cases, it'll be us versus him. There still is another bigger divide. Mm -hmm. All 30 of us against them in the same way that Oklahoma and Texas don't like each other. Right. (laughs) College sports and everything. But if Mexico raised up, <laughs> Oklahoma and Texas like, we don't like each other, but we got to work together. They'll join powers, and, and that's just how it is. And so this expectation, it was one of the hardest questions for me to answer last week was all these different outlets and stuff asking me, how surprised were you that this was the NBA response? And I'm like, not at all. This is what I said was going to happen a year ago because I know they're not going to put themselves on the line in a way that can ultimately be turned back on them. And as much as they don't like Robert, he's still, quote unquote, one of us, our bastard redheaded stepchild, but still one of ours. As I get older, I try my best to, like, not grandstand and look at me, Louie. It's hard because everyone likes the opportunity to point at someone else and say they suck. I understand. I am not trying to raise the bar for me either. Like, I'm not trying to convince my wife that I'm not doing enough. It's just not what I'm looking to do. You know, like, I understand that incentive. I don't know what the perfect example of it is because I don't do things like that. I'm not going to be like, hey, you know what my friend bought his wife for her birthday? A car. (laughs) You know, like, I just generally, I understand that they do not want to raise the expectation and raise the bar for them. It goes against, like, everything that is human nature. But... So like that's where it's our responsibility to like push them to do the right thing and to raise that bar because at no point 
Does anybody want to give themselves less power or hold themselves more accountable? That's just not what we do. What tools do we have available to us, either as individual citizens or as media members, to try to uncover what I suspect happens in a lot more front offices and ownership groups than just Phoenix? Yeah, I mean, the media members is not to let it die. It's to keep it front of mind. And obviously, I'm in the media, so I understand the challenges in doing that because most of the people who are listening to this probably going to get tired of it. And again, they want their feel good, as Dan says. And week two of NFL. Yeah. <laughs> just happens. So. Week two of NFL is swamping everything. Well played, NBA. Well played. But I think it's also like the things we talked about earlier. You can talk with your money. And you can talk with your feet. And you can actually go and pick at the stadium, boycott the games. These are all things that I don't expect to happen. But if you want change, that's how it comes about. Change in this case, that's a straightforward one. But let's say I'm a fan of the Detroit Pistons. I don't know of anything untoward happening. But my gut tells me that billionaires tend to think that the rules don't apply to them. Yeah. I mean, you can be a fan of the Detroit Pistons and not go to Pistons games because you are upset about Robert Sarver and upset because, I mean, any team upset because your team owner has not spoken out and your team owner is not advocating to do the right thing. Like that's a line that I don't think anybody would cross, but there is something that the NBA could do that was bad enough that we would stop messing with them. I doubt that this is it, but that's the move. The question is what happens now, right? PayPal's threatening to pull its money if Robert Sarver is not banned for life. The players union as a collective have stood out and said, we want him out. He should not come back to this league. But we haven't heard it from any any other owners. And we all know that if he is going to get the boot, it's going to take three quarters of owners to vote him out. I've read it in a few places that people are expecting that by the time this ban is done, the one-year ban is done, he is going to sell his team. My question to you is, is that your expectation too? Do you see this playing out in such a way that at the end of this year, this season, Robert Sarver has decided either I'm being forced out and I have to sell or the NBA owners are going to force him to sell? You're asking the wrong one because I base my opinion off of somebody who actually knows him like Amin. And based on what I've read about him and what I've heard Amin say about him, this is just going to make him dig in even deeper. And he's out here threatening to to sing on everybody else. And again, I don't know Robert Sarver, but it does not seem like he's the type of guy that's going to buckle to this type of pressure. But the only way you can move him out then is with the three-fourths vote, which is a hard thing to get. It's a fork in the road. You have to make that direction more comfortable for the team owners than the do-nothing direction, which is going to be really, really hard to do. Ultimately, Donald Sterling was not forced to sell the Clippers because of the league taking action. Donald Sterling was forced to sell the Clippers because Shelly Sterling basically testified that he was unfit, Mm -hmm. that he'd lost his mental faculties. And as a result, she, as the owner of the trust, owned the Clippers. And so that's how they got it done. It was a roundabout way to get him up out of here. Now, he was banned, but in terms of losing ownership, because ban only means all the stuff that they say that Robert can't do over the next year. Can't come to games, can't be involved in any business decisions or any basketball decisions, can't come to any NBA facility or office or anything. But as long as the check still gets cut, he gets it. Yeah. The only way to, to divest of that part was to make him sell the team. 
Gunners had $2 billion. Ouch, that really hurt. In the case of Robert Sarver, you know, they say in the report, he's someone who views rules and kind of rulings as a challenge rather than just like, oh, I got to take this L. The only way I see him selling or agreeing to sell is not from pressure from the league, but if every single sponsor says we're out to where now it's not a viable business for him. If you take out all the revenue from sponsorships, that moves the needle for him to like, okay, now I'm just losing money just to say I own this team. And from that standpoint, Robert becomes very coldly calculating and saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I guess I thought the perks of the NBA team is the reason why, it's like a huge reason why you would own an NBA team. Just getting revenue from an NBA team and franchise value growth is like owning part of a public company. There are plenty of those that he can buy into. If you can't come to no games, you don't get to host your buddies, your business partners. You don't get to be the man in these streets. Mm -hmm. You don't get to hold up a championship trophy while you're drenched in champagne. Like, I think that is pretty painful. And that, I don't know, maybe I'm putting myself in that situation, but I don't want to own a team just to get a check. I want to be a part of it. You're right. That's why, right? There's two things. One is, because there's some look at me, Louie, in you as well. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that like when I go to a restaurant and I'm Robert Sarver, banker, all right, take a seat, man. Take a number. <laughs> but I'm Robert Sarver, owner of the Suns, and oh, by the way, I'm, I'm coming to dinner with Chris Paul. Yeah. It's right this way, sir. So there is an element of that. He himself, Robert, has talked about his charitable stuff that he does, that it's easier to get people to open up their pocketbooks for charities if Phoenix Suns is affiliated with it rather than some rich guy. Can you imagine trying to close any business deal or investment and you bring them to the son's locker room? Yep. This is a huge advantage that if you can take that from him, it does matter to me. So I want to ask you, because right now, Shams Charania is reporting at The Athletic that CBA talks are underway between the two sides. And one of the issues central to these talks is the age limit. The NBA has been pushing for years to move the age limit from 19 to 18 and allow preps to pros happen again. Same avenue that LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Dwight Howard, Kevin Garnett, the list goes on and on that had amazing Hall of Fame careers and they didn't need to go to a year in college and that whole facade of getting an education for 12 weeks or whatever it is. It looks like that is going to be lifted in time for 2024. My question is, is that a give from the players? The NBA has been pushing for this. Why do the players care about this? Especially because it does seem like that means younger players are coming into the league to take the older players' job. And it doesn't seem like that would be advantageous to the union. It's minor because it's one year. But yeah, I mean, I do think that it increases the player pool and it does make it harder initially, at least, to stay in the league. So the players wouldn't necessarily love it, but it's probably not smart for me to project. But when I was there, players didn't care. They weren't like, we got to move this age up. But you can use it. You can pretend like you care in order to try to get something out of them. But normally you're supremely confident. Most of the guys that are in the NBA aren't concerned that some high school kid is going to come take their job. It's not the way they think. The NBA, I feel like, had two things that were very counter to the sides that were arguing for it. One is the age limit, where players want it removed and owners want it in or even raised. And I'm like, shouldn't it be the opposite? Shouldn't the players want an age limit to limit competition for spots? And owners say, no, no, there's a great player right now. Let me go get him right now. And the other thing is the maximum salary. The maximum salary 
behooves players because having a max salary for your stars means that there's all this leftover money that has to go somewhere by virtue of the BRI split. Then it ends up creating this robust middle class of guys that make 12 and $14 million a year. When in reality, we know there's a handful of guys that we will give all the money to and happily pay everyone else minimum or thereabouts. But the players argue against the maximum salary and the owners argue for it, even though having a maximum salary prevents them from paying the people who are most responsible for wins and losses. I mean, I think the age limit is about NFL envy. There's some value to having a free minor league, and there's also value to having these players pre-marketed for you. And I think that's why the league would value that. But they've come to realize that it doesn't really help if it's one year because you're just as likely to make a mistake on a guy after one year of college as you are I mean, maybe not just as likely, but you can make a mistake on a guy after one year. And also, we don't know guys who spend one year in college. Like the general average fan, you don't get that marketing boost unless it's Zion. Everybody else is like, meh, okay, whatever. And I think players, I'm biased, but we're just better human beings. So we think the age limit is unjust. So that's why we oppose that generally because we're good people. There you go. As for the max salary thing, anything that limits guys pay so one thing you made a good point obviously is the middle class it becomes more robust because of max salary but also guys who are not max salary guys get max salaries because they're the best guy on the team and you kind of have to give Bradley Beal a max salary Mm -hmm. when I think of what the max salary should be is the best player on like a championship quality team there's probably only like 10 guys in the league you know Mm -hmm. but all the guys who are those 10 guys, they're having their salaries suppressed by the max deal. Right. And then there's probably 20 other guys who are having their salaries increased by the fact that they have to meet there. And then there's the rest of the league who's also participating in this robust middle class, as you put it. It's obvious why most of the players appreciate that. The owners, I think, value it because it gives them an opportunity to build the team and also they don't feel like they're they're taking power away from those top guys. They don't have to negotiate against their star guy. They're just like, hey, that's all I can give you. My hands are tied. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in the past and with the, the soft cap, which has progressively gotten harder in the NBA, but with that soft cap, you could be in a situation where you are paying – Lots of tax because you've gone over. The Warriors paid like a billion dollars this year to have a championship team just to keep their own players. I mean, have a team that won the championship. Yeah. It's very different. Dominique, thank you. I know this is week three of the NFL coming up here. So I appreciate you taking time out of your day to talk some NBA during the middle of the NFL season, Dominique. Oh, no problem. I loved it. It was fun. Appreciate y'all guys. You sound thrilled. Yeah, we're really excited. You sound like you had the time of your life. He's definitely a top five guest. I don't care what anybody says. Dominique's the top five basketball Illuminati truth teller. Thank you. Thank you. I knew that in my heart before you said it, but I appreciate you validating. But unfortunately, we have a max, so it's all equal. (laughs) You don't get a bigger revenue split. Uh, No, I really enjoyed it. I do get tired of giving football takes as I'm about to go do two other podcasts where I just give football takes. So thank you guys. Are the Cowboys better with Cooper Rush? Hell no. (laughs) 